Welcome back to the Food and Light Show, your one-stop shop for nerd news already heard and opinions you don't need. On today's episode, we'll be discussing some nerd news, and then creepypastas, and more specifically, SCP. Oh, and I'm Dakota. I'm Brian. And this is Cthulhu Light Show, in case you didn't already get that. Six episodes in. So how you doing, Brian? Oh, I'm great. I'm hoping for a shorter episode this time, considering our last two were extremely long before they got cut down. Yeah, yeah. This should hopefully be a shorter one. It'll be a nice little nostalgia trip, um, followed by probably a lot of cringe. Speaking of nostalgia and cringe, for our first news topic, we want to talk about the fact that uh, Team Four Star, who have been doing DBZ Abridged for years and years, um, just announced the other day in a video they released on their channel that they are officially ending the series. Uh, now, this was, like, mildly controversial amongst their fan base because they recently finished the whole Cell arc in the show, which is a pretty good place to stop, uh, but they did tease a fourth season and assured everybody that they intended to do it, and now they've said, for a few reasons, partially, like, creative burnout, partially um, that the copyright strikes have been, like, endangering their small business, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. They're, they're discontinuing the series. Um, how, how do you how do you feel about that, Dakota? Did, did you still keep up with Team Four Star at all? Uh, no. I the last thing I watched was uh, maybe the Cooler movie they did. Okay. Like, I, I I haven't I haven't kept up with uh, with DBC abridged really any any uh, YouTube abridged series in, in a long time. Right. It's unfortunate because I I remember I remember. Uh, DBZ Abridged being good. Yeah, I think DBZ Abridged was one of the few series that actually was occasionally genuinely funny. Um, although, like I will say, when you go back and watch those early episodes, they're not nearly as funny as you fucking thought they were when you were a kid. Oh, um, is, that, is that the cringe? Well, there's a lot of lol, funny, random humor in those early episodes. Do you remember there was, like, that whole gag about, like, Piccolo, are you a Yoshi? Can I ride you? Do you remember that shit? No, I don't. Oh, uh, that's, like, the second episode. And I remember it was oh, everybody thought it was, like, the funniest thing in the world. In retrospect, there's nothing really funny about it. Um, but I will say, I actually did, because they uploaded episodes so infrequently that whenever one came on i did click on it and check it out and some of them i enjoyed more than others but um i can't say i'm particularly bummed about them canceling the series do any other abridged series still like exist on youtube dude i honestly have no idea because back in the day i watched a couple of course freeman's mind you know dbc abridged um mm -hmm. you you abridged was the first big one Ah, yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged. Yeah. I'm just gonna type in Abridged series and also mute my goddamn phone. You whore. Yeah, I I think the the format was extremely popular at one point in time, but I think it's kind of dead now. Oh, uh, not really. No? Uh, I just put it in Abridged series. Of course, you know, Little Creepos, Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged series pops up. Uh, he DBC still makes it from time to time. Um, yeah. 
There's also ones for the Seven Deadly Sins. Okay, and that's pretty. Goblin recent. Slayer, which are newer, they're newer anime, so it's still going. I guess the for the first episode of Goblin Slayer abridged uh, has two and a half million views. Really? Wow. Okay, that's that is admittedly unexpected. I do maintain though that for the most part, abridged series have kind of fallen out of fashion. Um, I think they've to a certain extent been regarded as kind of a cringe part of internet culture. Maybe that's just me who remembers watching a lot of cringy ones because for every good abridged series there were 10 that were recorded on like horrible mics with terrible humor and like you know we we all saw those and i think that at least for me informed my kind of impression of the the genre slash format as a whole man way to call me out like that did you do one (laughs) um yeah probably See, see, I, I remember attempting to do one as a kid, and that's part of the reason, because I look back on that experience as I was a, a, a cringe, fail little child. Um, <laughs> I, I look back on that experience, and, and that's part of why I, I feel this way about uh, a bridge series. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, we all tried it. We all watched uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! or DBZ, and we're like, oh, I could do that. I, I could... I can take a a TV show and be funny. Yeah, well, and for the longest time, a bridge series amounted to little more than just pointing out silly things in the content of the actual show. Like, one of the big things about, like, Little Karibo's stuff was that he pointed out how ridiculous it was to have a world structured around a children's card game that was, like... Like, that was, that was like, revolutionary, apparently, to the internet at the time. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I do think DBZ Abridged was one of the better ones, uh, but I totally understand why they would be burned out on it by now, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, personally. Oh, yeah. Why don't you tell us about the Animal Crossing news that you have been losing sleep over? Oh, yeah, that. Uh, I, f- I figured if I ignored it, it would go away, but... Uh... No, it's, it's still here. So, um, apparently, according to tweaktown.com, uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons could have microtransactions and DLC. Yes. And, uh, I'm not sure how I feel about this, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, you, at, at this point, if, if you listen to more than one episode, you know our, um, our feeling on, you know, DLC and all that. Yeah. Their Games is a Nuisance episode. Yeah. Which is one of the good ones. Please go back and listen to it. Yeah, I uh, I had a, I had a surprising amount of fun with that episode. Um, but it turned I, out pretty well. The DLC is a new thing for Nintendo, which is, just, which is interesting. Certainly paid DLC. Yeah, exactly. Because Animal Crossing New Leaf got the Welcome Amiibo. Uh, I guess you call it DLC. It was more of an, it was a free update. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm okay, I'm okay with DLC. Like I, I I got the Breath of the Wild expansion pass. I'm gonna buy the Sword and Shield one. You know, cause I'm 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 a, a dirty consumer. We all are, bro. It's okay. But the thing that bothers me about this is uh, microtransactions. Right. That's now, I, don't, the... I, I don't know. 
I don't know what that's gonna take, in, like in the form of like uh, like the cat tickets from uh, Welcome Amiibo. Yeah. Or if you're able to buy, if you're able to buy with real money, like quote unquote limited time furniture or shit like yeah. that, which I well, really hope they don't because that's that's gonna. That's just gonna. I don't, I don't like it. Don't do it. I don't like it. It's kind of gonna cheapen the experience of it. They might even say like, "Hey, if you pay us like a hundred real dollars, you can pay off your Tom Nook debt twice right off the bat." Um, oh wow! Yeah, which I think takes a lot of fun out of the game. Animal Crossing is like a grind, but deliberately so. It's meant to feel like day-to-day life. It's meant to feel like every day you get up and you do something to like make money and and improve your quality of life, essentially. Um, and like one of the small little joys of Animal Crossing is like checking the shop every single day, and then one day you suddenly see like a rare piece of furniture uh, that you have to have, you know. Um, and I think throwing in microtransactions to complicate that experience um, feels kind of sleazy. It does. I'm more or less okay with a paid DLC for Animal Crossing, um, although I do kind of wonder what form that would take. Um, maybe just a whole new batch of like villagers and furniture and stuff like that. There's um, that. Um... Maybe a fresh new island to set up on i don't know maybe that maybe um uh is tortimer's name yes maybe maybe, like you get like tortimer's uh you get a tortimer's island and do like shit there maybe yeah yeah i had considered that i do think that we need to accept that paid dlc is about to become standard for nintendo they like to make money just as much as any other company does. Um, and I think that... But I do think, so far, we've seen a certain amount of responsibility with how they implement paid DLC. Like, Splatoon, which ha- has been developed by the same team as Animal Crossing, implemented shitloads of free updates for the game throughout its its life cycle, and one paid DLC that was very fun and very good but could totally be passed over if somebody couldn't afford it or didn't want it. Like it wasn't a it wasn't a game breaker to to refuse to get that DLC. So I I'm hope I'm hopeful it'll be a similar approach for Animal Crossing. Yeah, me too. Just because and of course DLC is it was to be expected. DLC is how uh games work nowadays. Yep. Regrettably. Um, yeah. I mean, DLCs aren't that bad. Like, no. when it's shit, like, and we're going to go back into the discussion, like, with, uh, Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, like, they released basically a whole, whole ass game as mm-hmm. DLC. Yes, they did. It's the microtransactions that's the sticking point for me, because I really, really don't want to pay for Froggy Chair with yeah. real money. Well, that's, uh, yeah, well, because DLC, it feels like you're paying for another piece of the experience. You're paying for fun, for more fun, you know, on top of what you already have. With with microtransactions, it feels more like the company's trying to milk you, you know? Um, yeah. Which I think immediately takes a world that's, like, pleasant and friendly and nice, like Animal Crossings, and makes it feel a lot less friendly and nice. Um 
That said, I think in-app purchases, or not in-app purchases, but microtransactions, I think they're unlikely for Animal Crossing. Um, my guess is, and the article we referred to um, said that it's probably just DLC, and that is what I would assume. Um, I'm pretty sure the story just came from the fact that on the eShop, it notes that like uh, additional paid content will be available at some point. Which probably just means DLC. That's probably just, like, Tortimer's Getaway Adventure DLC. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like... Um, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes, I don't even know what DLC for Animal Crossing would be. I'm guessing it would be more villagers, more items, and... Maybe you could, like, expand your house more. Maybe you would get another island to explore. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, um, as the filthy consumer I am, I'll buy it and the DLC. Yeah. Because I sure do love those tiny animals. Um, now, for our final news topic today, we only have the three. Uh, we wanted to touch on Birds of Prey real quickly. We initially intended to do this episode about Birds of Prey, but our plans didn't quite work out. Um, so if we can, we might squeeze a brief talk about the movie into next week's episode but um for now we're gonna address the uh the box office problems with the movie um which is to say it it underformed underperformed pretty severely it only made 33.2 million dollars on its opening weekend um which is oh god really yeah it's much lower than any dceu film um, I believe Shazam opened at like fifty million, and that was considered like a flop. Yeah, Shazam did all right, considering. If I just pulled up Box Office Mojo, mm-hmm. uh, in the dailies from like the last daily like tally from Sunday, February 9th, uh, it raked in seven point eight million dollars. Okay. Well, which, oof. so Shazam, yeah, Shazam made fifty three point five million on its opening weekend. Um, which made it the 57th of all time for superhero movies, and Birds of Prey was considerably lower than that. Um, despite uh, well, that, all reviews indicate that it's a pretty good movie. I look forward to yeah. seeing it. It released in, like, 4,200 theaters, which is actually the largest release in February, like, ever. Yeah, well, that's and the other actually, thing. Actually, actually, looking into it, sorry, just real quick, actually looking into... The thirty-three million—that's only domestic. Right. International, it made forty-six and a half million. So the worldwide total right now is seventy-nine and a half million. Right. Which against its budget of eighty-four and a half million. Yeah. Still a flop. It's it's still gotta make some ground up, but hopefully it, it at least breaks even because even outside the eighty-four and a half million dollar budget for the movie itself, you've got to look at uh, marketing and all that, which yeah, is. Like usually an extra half, if not full, of the the budget right. the movie actually is. Although they seem to do relatively little to market this movie, I don't know if you noticed that. There was like a pretty big YouTube trailer, and then I didn't see much of it beyond that. Um, yeah. Which some have attributed to its failure. Some have also blamed its original title, which was "The Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn." Which admittedly is not a super, not a super marketable title. 
Um, I get what they were going for, but not sure if that was a wise move. They've since changed it to DC what, posted cringe. Yeah, and they certainly lost subscriber. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I mean, there's a there's a few other factors. The I think the real problem is even when you factor in the foreign box office, most movies trend downward as they are out. It's possible that positive word of mouth will get some more people in the theaters to see this movie, but we'll probably see diminishing returns with each and every day, and China will likely be completely off the table in terms of foreign box office opportunities for the entirety of its its run in theaters, because I think literally all theaters in China are currently closed because of the coronavirus outbreak, which is why the foreign sales are as low as they are. So that's that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, I think ho- f- hopefully, hopefully it does come out in China once they're once yeah. everything gets figured out, the theaters reopen. I find it hard to believe that the Chinese market would really like the movie anyway, just based on the vibe it goes for. But I guess you never know. I think really the most disappointing thing of all is that this is a February release without much real competition around it. And it still grossed this little in its opening weekend. Like, it should have made more, by all accounts. Because what's out right now, I don't even know I don't, I don't even know what actually is out right now. There's nothing gets released in January or February. No. There certainly haven't been any superhero movies recently. Oh, no, none of that. New movies in theater, Bad Boys for Life, uh, Doolittle. Which do mine to the next flop. level. So, god damn. Yeah, nothing good is out right now. Yeah, and Jumanji's been out for weeks. Yeah, it should have performed far better than it did. And there have been rumors brewing that perhaps Wonder Woman 1984, if that's what, that's what it's called, right? Yeah, so there's there are rumors brewing that apparently that movie's really bad and, and Warner Brothers is panicking. For a while, DC was on the upswing, but we're going to have to keep an eye on them uh, in the future. Holy shit, Bad Boys for Life worldwide made $336 million. That's a $90 million budget. Wow. Low low budget movies are the key nowadays. If you if you can't compete with a uh, with a apparently. big superhero movie, just spend less and get a better quality script. Low budget, big kino. So do you have anything else to add or should we get into our, our, our main topic? Yeah, we should probably get ahead and Go on to the main topic. On to our, our, our big old big old big boy topic. Uh, we wanted to talk about creepypastas, um, which are a weird and kind of fun part of internet history. I will say for the record that I think most creepypasta have aged pretty poorly, but in like the earlier days of the internet, especially when you're a young child, a lot of this stuff was really gripping and really, like, captured my imagination. I don't know about you, Dakota, but I, I did spend a fair bit of time looking up creepypasta. A lot of them scared the shit out of me, but I kind of couldn't help myself. For anybody who doesn't know, creepypasta, these stories would be born on, like, forums and things like that, and then people would copy and paste the stories onto other websites and they kind of spread like wildfire that way and also you know the authors of these stories were often anonymous and oftentimes as they were copied and pasted and passed around 
little bits and pieces would get added, tweaks would be made, and they really took on like a life of their own, kind of like a weird 21st century version of like old folklore and mythology where like everybody has a slightly different uh, recollection and take on some of these uh, some of these stories. Although I think definitive editions do exist for many of them. Um, but uh, so I was doing a little bit of research before we started the episode because admittedly creepypasta isn't something that I really keep up with nowadays. I was trying to pin down when creepypastas really got started. I remember getting into them into in the like like the late 2000s, like around like maybe 2007, 2008. But there are some people who have argued that creepypasta started as early as the 90s with like creepy chain emails. Uh, what what do you think of that, man? Uh, it's definitely possible. I I remember I, I've had an email address for, God, fucking, I don't know, 12 years now. I remember yeah. getting like dumb chain emails. I don't know if I call it creepypasta itself because there's such a yeah. there's such a, def- a definition around it. it the chain emails really, yeah, really I... don't fit that. Creepypastas aren't like, you know, send us to ten of your friends or yeah. the little girl will show up in your room tonight. But I, I can definitely see, like, the spread of, like, quote-unquote scary stories on, like, forums and Usenet groups and early 4chan. Yeah. Which actually is where the term creepypasta comes from. Yeah, I know. The, I know the the genre does kind of have its roots in in 4chan, to some extent. Yeah, that's creepypastas and SCPs themselves actually started on uh, 4chan as well. Yeah, a lot less racist um, than you think. But uh, I can. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um. So, one of the things I would say is. I agree, I don't know if they necessarily, these, like, chain emails necessarily fit the definition of creepypasta, uh, but I can definitely see how creepypasta evolved from that form of storytelling. There's a definite through line um, from, like, your early chain emails to your creepypastas to SCPs. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's, like, it's, it's an email often from an unknown or anonymous source that's spreading from person to person to person, taking a life of its own, possibly changing and morphing um, as it's passed along. And it it wasn't even just an email thing. When texting first became big, you would often get those stupid chain texts that would try and paint you like a creepy picture and then tell you, like, if you don't send this to your five favorite people, then, like, your your puppy and your mother will both die together. So I think there is a, a pretty clear evolution there. And I think around the same time creepypastas were taking hold, you were seeing an upswing in those chain texts. Um, So it started in the 90s, possibly, but websites specifically dedicated to the genre of creepypasta didn't really emerge until the late 2000s, early teens. Ted the Caver, which is actually one I had never heard of, uh, is one of the earliest. And you you said you hadn't heard of Ted the Caver either. No, that that one has slipped my mind. I didn't catch that until I, you know, in the crack research that I do for this podcast, I, I <laughs> oh yes, damn it. In the crack research that I do for this podcast, I looked up the creepypasta oh, yeah. Wikipedia article. Hell yes. And I found, of course, Slenderman, Jack, uh, Jack the Killer. Yeah. Latin. Is it Jack the Killer? Jeff the Killer, you Jeff, fucking God damn hack. It. I'm such a boomer. 
He's gonna fucking find you, dude. You guys still reading about that uh, that Jack the Killer there? That uh, <laughs> is he that winning? Sk- that skinny guy in the woods. Yeah. Who is God supposedly from like an edited picture of a girl who committed suicide in 2008? I was um, thinking of Eyeless pu- Jack, not Je- not Jeff the Killer. God damn it! Jeff the Killer is eyelidless. So yeah. I see where I see where you would yeah. get that. Eyeless Jack um, is different. But anyway, um, some other very notable creepypasta that I wanted to mention were Squidward Suicide, which I barely remember, but it was framed <laughs> as like a, a like a band episode of SpongeBob where fucking Squidward killed himself. Uh, <laughs> Sonic.exe, which I was not familiar with. That was uh, that was your addition to our to our outline. Which um, that's that's one of those. It's just like. A cursed video game. Yeah, a little, little, a bit of like a generic subgenre of the genre is like the video game creepypasta, which for me is epitomized by Ben Drowned. Which, oh yeah. As a huge fan of Zelda and Majora's Mask, that was one that I found at a young age that really like captivated me. Majora's Mask already has a lot of creepy content in it, and. Uh, the story itself, like the creepypasta, relies quite a bit on the creepy stuff that already exists in the game. So, you know, I that 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 really struck me at the time. Um, supposedly, like the cartridge was haunted with the spirit of a boy named Ben who died a long time ago, and now now the guy playing it is being haunted and going insane. And I don't even remember how the fucking story ends. I just remember that the the weird elegy of emptiness statues like appear by his bed or something. Yeah, and like Sonic.exe is just like this kid gets a copy of like Sonic CD from his from a friend of his. That's like I have to get rid of this game, man. Don't play it. It's scary. And then of mm-hmm. course the guy plays it, and it's like it plays like Sonic for a little bit, and then like Sonic kills Tails or some shit, and like oh no, all the animals They're die, alone. and like Sonic shows up on the screen with bleeding hyper realistic eyes. <laughs> just the most generic shit the, 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 uh, now the most generic shit you can think of but back then was like actually kind of scary yeah well yeah well because, probably because the internet was becoming more fully formed but it was it still had a little bit of a kind of wild west feel to it where uh like creepypasta was like a reinvention of a form of storytelling with a twist for like a whole new medium to experience it in um like it was it was horror all over again but with additions that only the internet could give it like the 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 anonymous nature of it being like passed along and given life and um one of them in particular that i think is really fascinating is um slender man we have to talk about slender man oh of course He's like the um, poster boy for creepypastas. Yeah, even though I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Slenderman was one of the later creepypastas. Uh, he started in like 2009-ish, is the earliest I can find okay. references of him. Okay. Like Ted the Caver started in like 2001 or some shit, like it was super right. early. Right. Slenderman was huge, and one of the things that made Slenderman interesting and creepy was that there was an incredibly like subtle touch to how they handled him initially um because the the way slender man began 
was people just editing Slenderman into the backgrounds of creepy, grainy old photos. Do you remember coming across any of those when you were a kid? Oh, God, yeah. I'm browsing 4chan entirely too young coming across, like, Slenderman threads. Those pictures did creep me the fuck out. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe if I went back and looked at them now, they would seem a little silly, but... Uh, oh, definitely very, now, yeah. They were very effective to me at the time. And, like, the big thing and, that got Slenderman going, aside from, like, getting photoshopped into random pictures, yeah. is that whole, like, Marble Hornets, like... Uh, I guess it's a game. It was, it was like, a, it was one of those, like, alternate reality games. Like, yeah. I Love Bees, or... Other, I can't think of any others right now. But it's one of those where, like... It, it, it's, it's, uh... It's hard to explain. It, it, it's like a weird, it's a weirdly meta form of game where you have to like visit a website or call a number or download right, something right. or watch a video and it, it, it links together like a story. Right. And then later there was kind of a popular, um, like more standard horror game with Slenderman where you had to like wander in the dark and collect the little pages and stuff. Yeah. Um, and that, that contributed to the popularity quite a bit. The really infamous thing with Slenderman was that in 2014, a couple of girls in Wisconsin stabbed their younger friend because they thought if they if they killed her, Slenderman would come see them. Which I don't know why you would want to meet Slenderman, but like obviously some mental illness was at play there. Um, the little girl that they stabbed was stabbed like many times, and she's alive. If she got stabbed 19 times. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure she's, like, alive and relatively well today. And she spent, like, a week in the hospital, so like, she's doing all right, I guess, as, as well as you can. Pretty fortunate considering... And getting stabbed by your friends. Yeah, pretty fortunate considering the the horrible circumstances. But that that got public attention on, on Creepypasta as a phenomenon. You know, it was covered by... The New York Times, it was covered by Time, it was covered by a bunch of major news outlets. We got a movie about Slenderman very recently, which I think was probably inspired by that incident, but they also did not want to offend anybody by working the controversy into the film. So I think they even wound up making it PG-13 and just kind of let it the movie die slowly with like out people noticing it. Um, yeah. Anyway. Do you, do you have fond memories of Creepypasta and, like, trolling the internet for them online as a kid? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think everyone should experience, like, staying up way too late when you have school the next day and looking up scary stories on the internet. Right, that's a great fucking feeling, dude. Um, that's probably partly the nostalgia talking, but, like, when you're, when you're a kid, it's a lot easier to believe that anything really is possible and that kind of naivety kind of makes everything feel more real. Like, even if I knew that a lot of the creepypasta stories weren't real, I was still far more willing to entertain them. Yeah. Yeah. I miss being that gullible man. For real, dude. So, I want to talk a little bit now about what makes creepypasta work. And this so, is this is all you... Okay. You're the you're the guy. You're you're the big like writing guy. 
Yeah, well, I've got, yeah, so I'm gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna have to forgive me. I have a, an English degree, and I wanted to bring a little bit of that to bear on this discussion, because I think there's actually an interesting pattern with creepypasta that's very similar to how, like, the early gothic novel emerged back in the day. Novels in general were frowned upon for a long time, hence why they're called novels, and one of the ways authors would get around this would be by pretending that their work of fiction was possibly maybe true. Like, they would say that, I never, I did not experience the events of this story personally, but my best friend's second cousin did, and I heard about it, like, third hand. And that way, you could pretend there was some air of credibility to it. Um, and that was incredibly important to the gothic genre, where these, part of what made these tales of horror so gripping to the people reading them at the time was that they were framed as if they were real. They were framed as if they had really happened. Um, so, for instance, like the, the first ever gothic novel was called The Castle of Otranto. is written by a dude named Horace Walpole. And he framed it as though it was a real story. That, uh, that he was talking about events that had really happened. And people were fucking gullible. And when it came out that it was a work of, a, a total work of fiction, the dude was ran out of town. Like, all of his fame and renown disappeared overnight because people felt, like, betrayed by him. But my point here is that creepypasta followed a similar pattern, where a lot of early creepypasta were framed as though they were real things happening to real people. Ted the Caver, which is, one again, one of the earliest, began in 2001 as a series of blog posts that documented this guy Ted's um, gradual exploration of a system of caves with his friends, and, you know, each time uh, they went in, they saw more and more weird shit, and it ultimately ended with them saying that they would return to the cave with weapons to confront with whatever was inside, and no other post was ever posted. And part of the reason that captured people's imagination on the internet at the time is, even if some people probably recognized it was not true, People could convince themselves they were reading a real account of a real guy who had really discovered a strange thing and documented it, and then really mysteriously disappeared out of the blue. I think that's fascinating, and a lot of creepypasta did this. A lot of creepypasta mixed, like, the, the mundane and the everyday with the, like, horrible and the supernatural. Ben Drowned is all about a, a guy rolling up to a garage sale at an old man's house and finding a cursed cartridge of Majora's Mask. The rest of the story is completely unbelievable, but we all as kids went to old people's garage sales and had that delightful experience where you would find an old video game buried amongst all the, like, fucking Beanie Babies or whatever, you know? It, yeah. The, the genre was given strength through the fact that it mixed the horror elements into believable, relatable experiences. I think that's really cool, and I don't think the genre would have caught on otherwise. It, it almost has a kind of like campfire quality to it, where it's like you're telling ghost stories around a campfire, and, uh, you know, my cousin knew a guy who knew a guy, and then, you know, the next guy tells the story, and it's uh, my friend's cousin knew a guy who knew a guy, and it just... You know, again, that life of its own kind of quality, that that kind of, um, uh, what's the word, the kind of mask of pretend realism. Uh, I got it. Suspension of disbelief. Yeah. But anyway, that, that's my brief little, like, nerd rant um, that probably nobody cares about. I, I just think it's interesting how 
modes of storytelling reinvent themselves over time that like in the same way that gothic horror invented itself into literature you're seeing that kind of mode of telling ghost stories re-evolving being reinvented to fit the the medium of the internet and also like the 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 internet did contribute to the format quite a bit like creepypasta were incredibly tapped into pop culture um dakota and i discussed this before we started the episode a little bit but uh the whole jeff the killer character uh one of the things that he does is when he goes crazy and becomes a serial killer he cuts a scar in his face in the shape of a smile um and this i think this story didn't we agree that it started around 2008 yeah which is the year of the dark knight which is the year of heath ledger's joker so like clearly you know this is a this is a world where stories are being written anonymously you know non no fear of copyright infringement people are freely borrowing ideas that excite them and and integrating them into their work and that that also contributed to the kind of excitement and and, and life behind these stories so finally i want to make note of how the genre of creepypasta has evolved over time part of that evolution is you know, SCPs and the SCP Foundation, which Dakota's going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, But creepypastas in their purest form do, to a certain extent, still exist. Uh, The only problem is, creepypasta started as something really pure for the most part. It was an anonymous, often communal effort in which, again, you passed around a story, it spread on the internet for fun. You got no real reward from it. Most people didn't even know who were responsible for the origins of any given story. To this day, Red Letter Media is denying having created Slenderman because for a long time people claimed that they did, but they didn't. Um, so like a lot of these huge, famous um, internet legends just kind of came out of the love of storytelling and scaring the shit out of people and then, you know, became their own thing. Nowadays, creepypastas are a little less anonymous, a little less communally driven. Um, Again, this is ignoring SCPs, which have kind of carried on the spirit of creepypasta. Um, A lot of modern creepypasta tend to be authored by a specific individual who usually very consciously lays claim to the work, tries to get notoriety for it, tries to, you know, cash in on it, tries to manufacture a smash success a wildfire story like what you had with, you know, Slenderman and stuff like that back in the day. And the actual copypasta-ing part of copypasta has become a little more frowned upon amongst these individuals and kind of been framed as, like, a form of intellectual theft. How does that, that make you feel, Dakota? I, I get it. You know, people want to be remembered for something. People want to be, like, famous online. Yeah. Like, you know, attaching your name to something is fine. Mm-hmm. But, like, like, like you said, it kind of kills the whole, like, campfire story vibe, like the, uh, like the tales passed down from generation to generation kind of deal. Right. That we had. Yeah, I, I feel pretty similarly. I totally understand. It's got to be so frustrating to be the guy who came up with, I don't know, Ted the Caver or Slenderman or whatever and not receive any, like, proper recognition for it. Um, Maybe some of these people have been tracked down at this point, I don't know. But 
it, it's got to be so frustrating to make something that's such a hit and receive so little recognition for it. Um, I understand the impulse to protect something that came out of your own brain. However, uh, I do think it goes against the spirit of the the format and of the of the genre um, a little bit. So I I just think it's a it's it's a little less magical, a little less. It feels less like you're spreading ghost stories with your friends and a little more like some guy is trying to make a big impression on the internet by saying something outrageous, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I I've definitely talked, get that feeling. I've talked far more than enough. So why don't you, uh, tell us about the, uh, spiritual successor slash evolution of creepypasta. All right. So SCPs, which stands for secure, contain, protect, like Brian alluded to, they're they're kind of the evolution of uh, the the original creepypasta. Originally, they were mostly anonymous. I think now more people have their at least their screen names attached to them. Mm-hmm. Originally, they were more anonymous. They're very collaborative, which hangs out even today. Which is like the, the it's really one of the biggest things that that got SCPs as popular as they were was the collaborative efforts of everybody writing in this shared universe. Yeah, that's, so I, that's I guess. One of... That's one of the things I admire about SCPs is it really does feel like it still has that kind of collaborative spirit of the original creepypastas. Yeah, and the whole idea of SCP started back in like 2008 uh, on 4chan, specifically their Paranormal Board, or X, which, again, was just, just an excuse to write creepypastas. And like most things of 4chan, it eventually evolves into something resembling a uh, cultural phenomenon. Uh, in 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 the way that culture on the internet can have a cultural phenomenon. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. No, it does. Alright. The internet definitely has a culture unto itself, and I think Creepypasta and SCP are a part of it. Definitely. At least for some corners. Definitely. <laughs> the way the SCP, the, the foundation, as you'll hear it referred to as, works, because... The entities within the foundation are are referred to as SCPs. Uh, the way it all works is it, it's a secret organization, pseudo funded by the government. It, it's like a shadow government organization that contains and studies like paranormal bullshit and re- reality anomalies and stuff that quote unquote outside like the knowledge or the grasp and understanding of like normal shit. Uh, and the way the most SCP stories are written are in a very uh, academic, almost, kind of writing style. It, it's very, like, how do I describe it? it, it it's like, it's, it's written like a research paper, but yeah. if a research paper could scare you. Yeah, it's like a scientific report or a field report or something like that, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, let's see here. There's almost uh, even the, the only... whole thing... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, there's, again, with, like, the the kind of reinventions of horror, there's almost a little bit of an element of, like, H.P. Lovecraft in that, you know, he was very big on uh, having, like, academic figures examining horrors from the outside, like, At the Mountains of Madness in particular is framed as, like, a, uh, like, an academic paper. Um, yeah, a lot it, of it, the it, shit in the SCP Foundation is very Lovecraftian. Yeah, very much so. Um, it's an interesting subgenre of horror, and 
the the academic paper approach is a fun format to approach it from. Yeah, and of course, along with that, since it is a quote-unquote shadow government facility, right? there's a lot of, like, redacted information and, like, bullshit that they don't write down. Like, the way, the way that the SCP Foundation studies all this shit, all the weird anomalies, is with uh, D-class units, or D-boys, as they're referred to. I hate which, that. Yeah, they're D-boys. Yeah, which little they're D-boys? Yeah, little D-boys. Little, little, little D-boys out here, you're scared, you're scared of the uh, the humanoid statue that's gonna snap your fucking neck, pussy-ass D-boy? Silly D-boy. Sissy D-boy. But... <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Go on. So, yeah, the the D-class workers there are basically, like, death row inmates mm-hmm. that are handed off to the Foundation, just thrown into a cell to see what happens, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. They're basically told, like, if you stay in prison, you will die for sure. If you join the Foundation, maybe something not so horrible will happen to you. If you're it, it's a re- it's a real it's a re- it's a real toss up with the SCP yeah. shit. Most of these sure. guys would probably be safer staying in their maximum security fucking death row cell. Yeah, dying a peaceful and normal death. Yeah, instead of being transferred to a pocket dimension and fucking poked for eternity. Yeah. <laughs> or like turned into a shadow or some shit, just like yeah. being fucking erased. So. I hope I'm making sense, because SCP, the whole lore behind it is really hard to explain. The SCPs aren't always strictly spooky spaghetti, you know, your, your creepypastas. <laughs> yes. There are there are joke entries, and there are entries that are just uh, shit that's weird but not dangerous, and shit that's existentially terrifying. It, 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 it runs the gamut. And helpfully enough, the SCP Foundation has listed classes for... The SCPs. There's about three of them. There's the safe class, which are SCPs that are basically harmless, or ones that they can at least contain very easily. Uh, there's Euclid class, which is which is your more unnerving. Like they're usually uh, sentient or sapient objects or beings. So of course there's unpredictability of humanity and shit in there. And of course there's super spooky the Keter class which uh, are either incredibly hard to contain or can't be contained at all. And they're like, they can be malignant, they can be, like, super dangerous. The classes don't necessarily mean how dangerous they are. The, like, safe Euclid and Keter basically means how easy it is for them to contain. And then there's a fourth one I found here is Thaumiel, which there are anomalies that the Foundation uses specifically to contain other SCPs. They're they're SCPs that are used yeah. to keep SCPs in line. That's fun. Yeah, that, like that. That, that opens up a whole other world of stories. And yeah. speaking of some of the uh some of the most famous ones are ones that I that I like. Cause I just obviously I'm I'm not super well versed in uh, SCP stuff, but I do enjoy reading the stories. Yeah, neither of us is like an active member of the community or anything. Yeah. Just a few that I'm going to name drop here are just, uh, of course, there's uh, SCP-173, which is the sculpture, or peanut, whatever you want to call them, which is basically 
statue, I guess, uh, composed of like rebar and spray paint and concrete. Uh, when you're okay. observing it, here's where the spooky shit comes in. While observing SCP-173, it doesn't do anything, but as soon as you take your eyes off it, uh, it's coming for you. Which is is yeah. like I, th- I think we mentioned at the top of the episode, which is kind of like the uh, Doctor Who Weeping Angels. Yeah. Well, again, we're we're seeing like with the creepypasta that the SCPs are pretty keyed into pop culture because th- this guy came to be in late 2007 or early 2008 i believe which was shortly after the weeping angels were introduced on doctor who so like still taking a lot of inspiration from from pop culture and and kind of rehashing it so like yeah if you're staring at it, you're fine but if you look away for too long it'll break your fucking neck and of course there's uh scp-682 which is basically an invincible uh old ass reptile the big gimmick mm. with SCP-682 is that no matter what you do to it, it'll go back to normal eventually. Like, you stab it or shoot it, the wound will close up. You cut something off, it'll regrow. You dunk it in acid, which I think is one of the specific ones listed in the entry. If you dunk it in like acid and melts down to the bone, it'll, it'll reform all the muscle and tissue and all that gross shit. Right, and every time it does it, it becomes, like, more highly evolved. Like, it becomes less vulnerable to harm. Yeah, right? yeah. Kind of like That's Doomsday. the biggest thing is, okay. not only not only is it invincible, but it learns. Right. So if, if Which, you, you know, go to stab it, it'll grow, like, thicker skin. Right. Which, I guess, is probably inspired by, like, lizard, some lizard's ability to, like, regrow certain limbs. Um, yeah. Just, like, taken to an extreme. That's kind of cool. It is. It's it's like an unstoppable force. Like it, it it wrecks shit in its path and literally every attempt you make to kill it makes it stronger. And like this most existentially scary one would be uh SCP fifteen forty eight, also known as the Hateful Star. Mm-hmm. Which is basically a sentient star that is hurtling towards Earth and wants us all dead. That one's pretty cool. I, I like that one a lot. And then of course there's and like I said, they're not, they're not all scary. There's like, I forget the actual specific name for it, but one of the SCPs is, like, a vending machine that just spits out weird shit, like, yeah. eating food and, like, lemons and stuff. Yeah, there's, like, a wormhole inside of it, right? Yeah, that, that's kind of, that's the, kind of the whole deal with it, is supposedly, like, a wormhole inside it. That's fun, yeah. One that I do have, specifically, is SCP-978, which is basically a Polaroid camera that whoever has their picture taken with it, the picture that comes out is, like, their deepest desire. This is one of my favorites, actually. I, I love this one, and I like the vending machine one, too, because I like that the SCPs are not, by nature, all evil or scary. Like, so, like some of the SCPs are just weird, inexplicable shit that happens to exist. Like, the vending machine and the camera are weird... But they're ultimately like neutral. Um, I yeah. think the Polaroid is fun because isn't it used sometimes used to like take pictures of SC other SCPs and like see what they're thinking? Yeah, yeah, that that's so, like, like that's get a feel for it. what they really desire. Like you could use it on the sculpture guy and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really cool. It it's super cool, and then of course 
Uh, there's the ones that I kind of gravitate to now, which are the the joke entries, yeah. which are denoted with uh, with a J. So it's like, uh, what did I have? Like SCP seven one four three J, which is which is kind of a controversial one. We won't get into it. Uh, it's basically it's 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 literally just a doorknob, <laughs> but when people use it, they become attracted to the doorknob. Yeah. I can't not fuck that doorknob. I physically cannot contain my desire to fuck that doorknob. (laughs) (laughs) And there's, um... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying good shit. And there's also uh, SCP-1756-J, which is basically a uh, DVD player that when you put a DVD in... It'll play uh, an episode of At the Movies with Siskel and Ebert that pertains to that DVD. So, like, if if, Sis- if Siskel and Ebert reviewed the DVD that you put in, it'll play that episode of it. But the funniest thing about it is, like, if you put in shit that they didn't, like, review, it'll still play out like they had reviewed it. Now, I can sit here and ramble about specific SCPs all day, but neither of us really want to listen to that, so... I think at this point it's best to just wrap things up. Uh, now, Brian, you're not super well versed in the uh, in the SCP like lore and everything. That's at least not as much as I am. So, what's uh, throughout my shitty explanation? Like, what's your big takeaway here? Uh, I think SCPs are pretty cool. I I was a little bit aware of them going in, and I I did a tiny bit of research beforehand. But uh, you definitely have a, a much better knowledge of them than I do. Um, I still think stuff like the uh, the Polaroid and the vending machine are my, like, preferred type. I don't know. I really love the idea that sometimes weird shit just happens. That not, like, that this stuff can be horrifying, but it can also just be, like, bizarre. I think that's a really fun departure from, like, the creepypasta tradition. Um, yeah, it's a more fun concept when it's, like mundane but still unexplainable yeah. as opposed to like a world ending threat well and it's it's much more versatile for storytelling purposes and uh especially like one of the things that you get with this is something i want to talk about is i dig scps because they're like an evolution of like i, I think i may have said earlier that communal storytelling aspect of creepypastas um, and when you have a community all contributing to this one, like, collected, shared universe, um, you have lots of different people coming up with lots of wacky, weird ideas. The Polaroid camera, like I said, is interesting to me because it's not just weird in of itself, but the community members found ways to build on existing stories by using that simple concept. Um, so I, I think it's really cool to know that 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 element of storytelling still exists on the internet, and um, I think probably SCPs would have appealed to me more as a kid than Creepypasta did. I don't know about you. Yeah, if I had found them earlier, because I, I didn't find SCPs seriously until a little later in life. Yeah, same. High schoolish. But yeah, the SCPs are like like we keep saying the next evolution in like the Creepypasta format. Yeah. And I find them immensely more enjoyable than uh, than your standard creepypasta fare. Yeah. Although apparently uh, SCPs are a lot older than I thought they were. I thought they 
had sprung up in maybe like the last five, six years. But I think they, they're almost as old as the first, like, true creepypasta, aren't they? Unless you count, like, the emails and stuff. Yeah. The, the, what became modern creepypasta started around the same time as SCPs. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I only started becoming aware of SCPs, I think, since, like, I, since I started maybe college. Um, I certainly was not aware of them when I was in high school at all. They seem to have, have had kind of a surge in popularity. I don't know. Yeah, so I think that's about it for this episode. You know, thank you for watching. Uh, you can find me, Dakota, on Twitter and Instagram, at Dak Russell Ford. Brian's still a fucking ghost online. Hell yeah. And he also told me that it's dumb to show the podcast on other services when people are already listening. So you can use whatever app you want to listen to our podcast. You probably already are. It's not on YouTube or anything. Not yet, yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah, we, we might create a small YouTube channel and start uploading it there. Just to reach as many people as possible. That would definitely probably help. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe it would definitely probably help. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, see y'all fuckers later. Yeah, peace out.